You may be seated. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, Laura, and um, <laughs> you should have. Your voice is beautiful. Um, what a joy it is to gather together here in this building, in this place, each week to stand and to sing these rich uh, hymns, uh, songs back to the Lord, and then to open up God's Word freely uh, each week. What a privilege and what a joy and what a need that really is, isn't it? So this morning, it is my privilege to introduce to you uh, the one who will teach us as we open up this letter to the Hebrews to the fifth chapter. Uh, we are going to be taught by Zionsville Fellowship's uh, teaching pastor and elder and our brother in the Lord, Drew Hunter. Um, and not only is he going to teach us the, uh, from the text here this morning in this letter, but Drew has been instrumental in the writing process of the Habits curriculum year after year. Um, from the very beginning and walking along beside us through it all, he has been instrumental in this process. So, um, Drew, we appreciate your time, your input, your wisdom, and your encouragement. So thank you for teaching us this morning. All right. Um, well, I love Habits of the Heart. I love you all. And I'm just so grateful for um, the study um, in Hebrews. And I've read the whole thing and love the work that's been put in to the study. Love meeting with and praying for the leaders. And um, thanks for letting me be with you this morning. Uh, so Hebrews, a deep, rich, challenging book, right? And this morning, we're going to jump into some of the deeper waters and considering the warning passages. So as we read through the ones that might be most perplexing to, to a lot of us, we're going to just look at all together this morning. And so just a note about this morning. I don't know um, if this will be more content or not, but it could feel um, like more content than usual. So um, I've included a lot in your outlines that you've been handed just so that you can um, review it later. Uh, it might be easier to, to follow along rather than have to write, write a lot down. Um, and I'm going to present my understanding of the, how the warnings function in this book and how they fit with the theology of this book. But my assumption here is not that we all already agree on how to view the warning passages. So there's a lot of freedom and patience to grow together and learn together over days and months and years. Um, it's taken me a long time of wrestling with this book to feel a measure of settledness with how to understand the warning passages. Um, so my perspective um, it reflects kind of what I think is faithful teaching throughout church history as well and from a reformed perspective. Um, but we, need to, we don't all need to instantly agree with everything I'm saying. So just know that if I say something and you're like, I don't know about that, that's totally fine. And we can be patient with each other. Um, also, you know, perhaps as we go even this morning, push the pause button on some um, maybe kind of avenues of thinking in your own mind because there's a lot of questions that can be raised when we consider the, um, these warning passages. And so some of the questions or perplexities that you might have early on if you hear something I say might actually end up getting a little bit more settled or understood better, or at least you know what I, what I mean when I say something, toward the end. Um, I think especially the last section of what we'll look at will, will help fill out a bit why uh, the warnings, how the warnings function. So um, why don't we pray together um, one more time. 
Father, we are grateful for you and for your word, and we pray that your spirit would be present among us to give us insight and understanding uh, into your word. Help us to think rightly about what you're saying to us in this book and respond appropriately by your spirit's grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, question at first, how would you, um, in what way do you see the Christian life as a race? What, would, what does it mean for the Christian life to be called a race? That's a central image used throughout the New Testament um, to describe the Christian life. So what does that mean? If the Christian life is a race, what does that mean? Yes, yeah, so they're moving toward an end point. Yep, that's great. It requires, it requires training. Yep. Yep, great process. What else comes to mind? Yep. Yeah, it might not be a steady pace necessarily the whole time. Mm-hmm. Especially if we think of it more like a marathon. Yep. So Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's a central image in the book of Hebrews, and really, um, to even understand the perspective of the author of Hebrews, we have to view the Christian life like a race, not just with a beginning point or an end point, but a, a journey toward an end. So the race needs to be finished, and according to Hebrews, it's not optional. Um, you must cross the finish line to be saved in the end. You must be oriented toward that goal. So Hebrews 10.36 uh, uses that image and says this, and I think this is one of the most important verses in, in, the, in the book because it just reflects so much of um, what the, the book's saying in short form. He said, it says in 1036, you have need of endurance. So this idea, you have need to keep going in the race so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the promise there is salvation, ultimate final salvation in the end. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a striving toward holiness that's necessary to see the Lord. So what do we do if we start slowing down or we see a friend starting to slow down in the race? Um, well, we need to encourage them. We need to remind them that the race isn't finished, that they need to keep going. Uh, they need to have endurance. And so that's the situation that the author's in. He's writing to people whom he knows and he's acquainted with, maybe friends of certain degrees, and he sees them starting to get tired on the race. And he's, he sees that they're weary. They're weary partly because of persecution um, and suffering. And they're weary of holding fast to Christ when it means life gets hard. And so he's writing to encourage them to keep running, to keep going. And he's deeply concerned about them. Because the Christian life isn't, um, the, the viewpoint of a race is not kind of an optional add-on for super-Christians. This is the Christian life. And so when he sees people starting to drop back and, and looks like they want to abandon the race, um, he calls them to keep pressing on. So what I, what I want to do for the rest of our time here is just to overview quickly the, uh, this section that you guys have studied. You'll be, you've studied it. You'll be talking about it. So I'm not going to walk through all the details of this particular um, text in Hebrews 5 and 6. So a quick overview and then step back and consider how this and all the warnings really function. How do we understand these warning passages through Hebrews? So a quick overview. There's an outline provided. Um, there's different ways to outline it. This is just kind of a, a 
one, one take. So it looks like there's a rebuke here toward the end of chapter 5. Um, and if you have your Bible with you, just open it up because we'll be looking at um, several different warning passages and that'd be really helpful to have open. So starting in our own text here, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10, he says, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you are dull or the word sluggish of hearing. So he's just gotten done, as you know, talking about Melchizedek or introducing him. He's introduced Melchizedek and then he says, uh, it's hard to explain. And why is it hard to explain? Can someone answer that? Yeah, dull of hearing. That's not what I would have expected. If, if I didn't know it was going to be the second half of that sentence, um, I would have said, okay, he introduces Melchizedek, and he says, this stuff's hard to explain. Uh, why? Uh, either because it's really hard to explain. I mean, this is, this is some heavy stuff. Um, or, you know, the problem's not in the teacher or the content. The problem's in the hearers. He says, this is hard to explain because you've become dull and sluggish of hearing. It's a, it's a spiritual inclination problem. And I think we know this experientially, right? There's certain, if, if you've talked with someone uh, maybe about the Christian faith or about the Bible and there's not much of a spiritual inclination, it's hard to even get traction with some ideas. On the other hand, if someone's very inclined toward growing and learning and has already been putting in a lot of effort over time, can make a lot of headway more quickly in even explaining things. So they're, they're, uh, they have a problem, they're dull or sluggish of hearing. It's a problem not of the ears, but of the heart. Um, and then he gives a warning. Uh, right after he encourages them, right after this he encourages them to press on to maturity. So he says in the beginning of chapter 6, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ or Messiah and go on to maturity or completion. Uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and instructions of washings and so forth. It's difficult to know exactly what he has in mind with this list. It definitely could be basic teachings of the Christian faith. I think it's probably also heavily uh, influenced by the sense that these are basic teachings of Judaism in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ. And he's calling them to kind of press fully into embracing Christ and the new covenant that's come with him, not just these basic things that they all kind of knew and expected. There's a coming Messiah, there's repentance is important and things like that. I don't think it influences our understanding of the text either way uh, in large part. So he's essentially saying, um, you know, don't go back. Jesus has come, he's changed everything. So don't go back to the basic things that you used to um, believe in before. Uh, Jesus has come and shown the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the king, don't have a hard heart toward his message, don't go back. And then he gives this warning in verses four to six. And, you know, in short, looks like what he's saying here is saying if, if people experience Christianity to the degree, to this degree as described, then, and, and then they reject it, it's impossible to restore them to repentance because they're, he says, because they're crucifying Christ again by rejecting Christ. So the reason is because rejecting Jesus after you know who he is, rejecting him is equivalent to saying, yeah, I think it was right that he was crucified. He might as well, if he came again, let's do it again to him. That's a, that's a fine situation. Crucified not for our sins in that sense, but just rejecting him through crucifixion. So it says they're, they're holding him up to contempt. Uh, it'd be saying with their lives, I've seen what Christ has to offer. Um, I've seen it up close. I know it. 
and I, my conclusion, it's a sham. Uh, there's, he's not to be worshipped as Savior and King. We should instead spit on him, torture him, and crucify him. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the logic of this warning as I see it. And then the consequences in verse 7 and 8, the result of rejecting Jesus is judgment. And this person is compared to a field that will be burned in the end. And then right after this warning, he gives an encouragement and an exhortation to the readers. He gives a reason for hope in verses 9 and 10 here. And then notice the encouragement. He calls them beloved, reminding them that they're loved by him. Maybe also he's assuming with that word they're beloved by God, which is true in his mind. He's confident that they will not in fact fall away, but they're growing sluggish on the race and they need to persevere. Verses 11 and 12, he gives that encouragement to keep going. And then in verses 13 to 20, there's a an assurance for those who do continue to trust Jesus. So to kind of summarize the central concern of Hebrews, he sees these people starting to drift. Jesus is not as beautiful and wonderful as he once was to them. The persecution is especially starting to make them wonder if Jesus is really worth it. Do we keep holding fast to Jesus when our lives are on the line, when our houses have been burned, when people have stolen from us, when we have friends in prison for the faith? I mean, is this worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? And his main goal is to convince them, yes, Jesus is worth it. And you must hold fast to him to be saved. And so he warns them and encourages them. So a a few general observations about the warnings now after that kind of overview of this text. Uh, And I think this is just helpful to keep in mind to not be um, thrown off too much when you come across one of these and, and misunderstand it. So they're all, these kind of five observations are noted for you. Some of them may be more obvious than others. So one, as you've probably known, there's five warning passages. They're listed there for you, at least the references. Second, each warning is part of an exhortation, and each exhortation flows from a point of instruction. In other words, here's the order. Um, the flow of the book is an alternation between teaching or instruction and exhortation, right? You've seen this back and forth, back and forth. And he gives a teaching about Jesus, some instruction about Christ and the beauty of the gospel and what he's done for us. And then he exhorts in light of it and encourages in light of that truth so that the exhortation flows from that teaching. And then a warning is usually right in the midst of that exhortation. Um, So this makes sense of some of the repetition in the book coming back to things over and over, the same kind of an exhortation, the same kinds of warning, because he's, he's kind of, his sermon has several points. Here's a point, now let me exhort and then warn in light of it. Here's another point, let me exhort and warn in light of it. Here's another point, he just does this over and over. So in other words, he's making one larger point over and over through these exhortations, right? This is a sermon letter of, of sorts. And so he's driving at one main thing. Third, each warning has its unique emphasis in its own context, and that just flows from what we just saw, right? If, if there's a unique teaching point about Jesus, and the exhortation flows from that, and the warning's part of that exhortation, then each warning's going to have its own flavor based upon what just came before, right? It's, it's some kind of warning in light of what was just said. So you always want to, when you read the warning, you always want to think, now why was it said like this in particular? And you can look right before it especially and see, well, what is this coming after? He's warning in light of some truth that he's just said about Jesus. Fourth, the warnings increase in severity. So as you read through them through the book, they get more urgent. They get more serious. 
He begins by warning them not to drift, not to neglect their salvation. By the end, he's warning of them of not rejecting completely Jesus, lest they face God's wrath. And then fifth, I think this is one of the more important observations would be that the, the warning should be read with the others. Each warning passage should be read in light of the other four because they're each saying differently one main thing. They have one main urgent call on the readers. And so if you come across one warning that really throws you off and is confusing to you, read the other four and things become a little more clear. View them together as a whole. This was meant to be one uh, letter. And so the warning should be read um, together. So what are the warnings all about? It's the second uh, point in the outline here, the nature of the warnings. A couple primary key observations about the nature of the warnings here that I think guard us from misunderstanding them. First of all, the audience. Who are they addressed to? This may seem obvious, but it's really helpful because some people go um, uh, misunderstand them if they miss this kind of key point. The warnings are addressed primarily to believers. Um, so th- this, these are warnings addressed to the church, and they're written to people described as and assumed to be those who are um, trusting in Christ. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, and there the author calls them in the midst of this warning, he calls them brothers. He includes himself in the warning. He says we, and he does this in a couple other warnings as well, saying we must persevere. Um, we must hold fast. So as a side note, this doesn't mean that he assumes in his mind that he knows the hearts of everyone there and he's assuming everyone is soundly saved and will persevere. I mean, he doesn't know the souls of everyone there, but it does mean he's assuming that the audience he's writing to are believers Um, and he's including himself in that warning. So throughout the letter, he's not trying to get them to doubt whether they're actually Christians. Um, He's assuming they're true believers, and he's warning them and himself of the consequences of following away, or falling away. So that's the audience, and then the concern is this. The warnings address, taken together, one primary fundamental concern, and that is leaving Jesus. The word for that's apostasy. Um, But falling away or forsaking or rejecting Jesus, falling away from Jesus and the gospel. So, in other words, all these warnings are, are oriented to call them to not abandon Jesus, but to hold fast to him in faith. Each warning passage makes this clear, all five of them. So, let's just scan through them briefly. So, if you turn to Hebrews 2, just note a couple observations that this is the fundamental concern in these warning passages. So we won't, we won't read each of these through, but I'll just point out a few things from each. So in the warning in chapter 2, verse 1, he warns them against drifting away from the message of salvation. And then in verse 4, he, he warns against neglecting so great a salvation. So this is about falling away, drifting from, neglecting the message of salvation itself. The next warning in chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, He warns against falling away from the living God. Verse 13, he warns against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in the heart. In the next verse, verse 14, he warns against not holding firm our original confidence, that original confidence in Christ, holding fast by faith. He warns against letting letting go of your grip on that confidence. The third warning in chapter 6, Verse 6, 
He warns against falling away and holding Christ up to contempt, having a perspective on Jesus that's fundamentally rejecting him. Chapter 10, the fourth warning, beginning in verse 26. Uh, this, this warning goes through 31 and a bit beyond, and I'll jump to what he says right after this warning, because it's still part of it. In verses uh, 36 to 38, he warns against not enduring, but shrinking back. So rather than moving forward, you shrink back from him. So that's the fundamental concern. Don't leave Jesus. Hold fast. Keep and keep going. In the book of Hebrews, the mindset is there's no neutrality, which is why the call to mature is the call to persevere in the faith and hold fast to Christ. Because if you're not leaning in, you're going backward. There's no neutrality um, in the Christian life. So what's the consequence? Talking to believers, warning them not to leave Jesus. And the consequence um, is this. The the end result of abandoning Jesus is eternal judgment. And each warning makes this clear as well. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, this first one, compares the Old Testament to um, a situation where the people face physical rejection and destruction, or physical destruction for rejecting God. In the message that he brought. With the gospel, the author argues there's, everything's ratcheted up, which means even the judgment's ratcheted up. Uh, there's a greater salvation. Now there's a greater judgment for rejecting this salvation. So it puts things in eternal terms. The warning in chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. So right after that warning, you can turn there with me, he gives this illustration of land being burned. In verse 8 there, the land is burned in the end. Now, some people interpret this as kind of a cleansing burning, so like the crops maybe burned away, and, and the, so this is like a believer who gets a purifying kind of uh, cleansing. But this is clearly, in, in my view, a judgment. There's the land itself is burned, and, and also in contrast, verse 9, this, is, this burning in the end is in contrast to what he says are things that belong to salvation. Chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, warns of not having a sacrifice for your sins. If you leave Jesus, there's no sacrifice for your sins then. He's the only sacrifice in verse 26. So no forgiveness. He warns in verse 27 of a fearful judgment and a fury of fire and a consuming of God's enemies. He's warning about being part of that. And then verses 36 to 38 of chapter 10, the consequence of shrinking back, right? We're, this idea of shrinking back, he says is destruction. So if you shrink back in unbelief, you're destroyed. And then the last warning is similar. You won't escape God's judgment. God's a consuming fire, he warns. So those are three, I think, basic observations about the warnings. Therefore, there's an implication of this through Hebrews. Perseverance in the faith is a necessity. So again, look at our text in Hebrews 12, or 6 verse 12. It says, only those who endure to the end will inherit the, the promises. So it says this literally, he's calling them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the promises here are the promises of salvation. 
So you inherit the promises through faith and patience, enduring faith. And that language here is looking ahead to what's to come in the book in chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith, all these people listed who essentially did just that. Through faith and patience, they ended up running the race and will inherit the promises. And that chapter, chapter 11, that lists all, all those people who were examples of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises, look what comes right before that chapter, what introduces that chapter in chapter in, um, chapter 10, verse 36. This is what we read um, earlier, and this summarizes the perspective of Hebrews. He says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Right? That's the same thing we see in chapter 6. Through faith and patience, you'll inherit the promises. And then he says this, But we are not, so he gives an encouragement, but here's the contrast of not shrinking back. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. What's the contrast? But those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the contrast here is shrinking back and being destroyed or persevering in the faith and therefore inheriting the promises. So I'll mention this later, right? This these just observations raise all sorts of questions, right? Well, what does that mean for this? What does that mean for this? I thought this. Um, and so really this is just, let's observe together what these say and then the questions raise and let's have a lifetime of holding this all together, right? But uh, I think one thing, one question this could raise is maybe you might think, I thought Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand, those who come to me. Once saved, always saved. So I believe that's true. I believe Hebrews thinks that's, the author of Hebrews thinks that's true. But we also need to have another true statement right beside that, which is not only once saved, always saved, but you must persevere to the end to be saved. And Jesus said both of those things. He said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So two things are true at the same time. Once saved, always saved. And you must persevere to the end to be saved. Um, and I think the Bible holds those things together. There's a, there's a tension though. So let's keep going and we'll come back to that to show how I think the, new t- the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews holds those two truths together. So let's understand the function of the warnings. Why are they here? So a couple observations. One, the author, I don't think, assumes or even thinks that these people will actually fall away. He's not writing because he thinks they're going to abandon Jesus and fall away. He, he assumes they won't fall away. He has confidence then that when he gives them the warnings, they will heed the warnings. They'll respond to the warnings and keep going. So he's assuring them of God's promises and encouraging them in hope. So chapter 6, verses 9 and 12, our text here shows this. Immediately after this firm warning against falling away, and if you do, you're like a land that's going to be burned in the end. Immediately after giving that warning, he encourages them. And he says, I love this. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So he's saying, if you fall away, you have eternal judgment. But that's not going to happen to you. I'm sure of better things for you. Things that belong to salvation. So the warning is real and is supposed to function toward them. 
But the consequences will not, in fact, happen to these Christians in this author's mind. And the reason for his confidence, he gives in verse 10, is because in the past they've demonstrated that they have true saving faith. They have a real faith. They're, they're really, truly uh, attached to Christ. And so he believes that they have a new heart. They've been truly converted or regenerated. And they will then, they have the kind of faith, in other words, that perseveres. He's seen in the past, there's evidence that they have a persevering kind of faith, a real faith, a saving faith. And so he says, that's going to continue. I've seen evidence of it, so I'm sure you'll continue. He does the same thing in chapter 10. He gives this firm, strong warning. Maybe it sounds like the strongest warning of the book in my mind, this fourth one. And then he gives assurance again, based upon what he's known they've done in the past. He's like, I've seen your life. I've seen your faith. I've seen you endure hardship. So I know you're going to listen to this warning and persevere. I feel sure of better things. So don't be discouraged. Second, the warnings, uh, how they function here, they, um, there's probably a better way to say this, but I couldn't think of one. They extend the implications of the cult of faith. So here's what I mean by that. The warnings fit right into the argument of the book. The the book constantly holds Jesus up as the object of our faith. And then, right, there's the teaching points, and then it brings those exhortations in. And the exhortations are to look to Christ in faith and trust in him for what he's done, to keep trusting him. In other words, the gospel message itself, when when it's presented to someone who does not yet believe the gospel, is here's Jesus. He's a perfect savior and a perfect sacrifice for your sins. Look to him and trust him. Believe in him. The book of Hebrews is just continuing that in the lives of believers. Those who do believe, saying, the message doesn't change, folks. Here's Jesus. He's your only sacrifice. So believe. Never stop believing. Don't fall away from him. Because salvation is through faith in him. So in light of this, the warnings are ultimately just implications of this. So, for instance, he's saying, if this is true about Jesus, this is the argument of the book over and over, if this is true, what I'm saying about Jesus in this section of the book, then, therefore, here's what it means for your life. Here's an encouragement and a warning. So, for instance, here's kind of examples of the the flow of the book. If Christ is the king of the universe, then he's the judge. Therefore, you can't expect to be saved if you reject him. Right? That's that's the gospel, and it never changes. And the book of Hebrews saying, whether you need to hear that for the first time in your life or all through your life, this is true. If Jesus is the king and the judge, you, you can't be saved if you reject him. Or if Christ is the true priest, the true great high priest, and his death is the only sacrifice for sins, then there's no other way to God. So implication, therefore, if you leave Jesus, you leave the only way of salvation. Or, you know, something like there's no salvation and no other name than Jesus. Therefore, you can't leave him and be saved. Or, only believers will be saved. I mean, that's just a basic gospel truth. Believers will be saved. So this book says, therefore, you need to be a believer. Keep believing. The gospel says, if you believe, you'll be saved in the end, and only those who believe will be saved in the end. And Hebrews continues that very same gospel call and applying it to the lives of believers, affirming the truth, saying, if you do not believe in the gospel, 
If you reject Jesus, you will not be saved. You must believe and keep believing to be saved in the end. And third, the warnings then, and here's maybe the best way to understand how they function. The warnings are God's means of persevering his people. God uses these warnings to work in our souls to cause us to persevere. God's the one who brings us to faith. God's the one who continues us in the faith. And how he does it is by continually holding up Christ before us and calling us to trust him. So he warns them, this author warns them, but the point of the warning is not because he's trying to make everyone get unsettled about their faith. He's not trying to make them think, oh, I must, I'm not a real believer. And that's not his point. He thinks they're Christians, and he gives them these warnings because he knows that they will heed them. He's confident that God will use this, these warnings to persevere them, to have them continue in the faith. So I have a couple quotes there. I won't read them, uh, but from just a really helpful book on this topic. But I will read this Spurgeon quote because I, I think this is helpful. So Charles Spurgeon, great pastor, um, the 1800s, um, he summarizes it this way. This is his view as well. He says, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by use of means. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there's a deep cellar where there's a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you, I think maybe that meant mixed air and gas. That might be a typo. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequence would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it. But he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences, and he's sure we won't do it. I think that's the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. So, illustrations, poison, right? Pointing to a bottle of poison, if I say, don't drink it, if you drink it, you'll die. There's no hope for you if you do, right? I have four boys. If there's a kind of poison out on the table, right? I say, that's poison. If you drink it, that will kill you. Now, I guess if there is of a certain age, I can assume that they're, they're reasoning with me. I suppose I can't fully assume that they wouldn't drink it if I said that if they're young enough. But Hebrews is writing to, uh, you know, people who have mental faculties that are developed. So, um, but here's the point. Don't drink it. There's no hope for you if you do. Um, but I could even say, and I know you won't, because you're going to listen to me. You always do. Or, you know, if... if um, the person drinks the poison, I know they'll die. And if I say, if you drink it, you will die. Am I implying that I think they're going to drink it? Do I want them to think, I'm the kind of person that drinks it? Does he think I drank it? Am I, oh my goodness, I don't know if I, uh, that's not the point at all. The point is to give an exhortation because it's true. If they drink it, they'll die. I'm not saying they're going to drink it. I'm not assuming they're going to drink it. In fact, I'm confident they won't drink it. But I also know that they need to hear my warning in order to not drink it. God uses means to persevere his people. 
So, or think about a race. If like a friend, this is the book of Hebrews, like a friend yelling over to his friends in the next lane who are slowing down and getting sluggish. And he's just reminding them, hey, you've got to finish this race. You've got to make it to the end to get the prize. There's no other option. If you quit, you can't start over. And you say this not because you think your friend's going to quit, but because you think your friend's going to listen to you if you encourage him and he'll persevere. So you're saying, wake up, and you know he'll listen to you. There's another illustration uh, storm in, in Acts 27. You can look at that um, a bit later, um, but same kind of thing happens. Paul's told that no one's going to die on the ship. He's sure of it. God told him, no one's going to die. And then Paul says things like, unless you bring this ship aground, we're all going to die, you know? Well, did Paul not believe God in that moment? No, he believed God, but God uses means. He also knew that, yeah, this ship, if it goes over, people are going to die. So God must have a plan to make sure the ship doesn't fall over. So in other words, summary, you can call this the means of perseverance view. The, the, the warnings are means of persevering us. The author's addressing believers. He's warning against falling away from Jesus. The consequence of falling away is that there's no salvation in the end, not just a loss of rewards. It's no salvation. And the key message of the warning is that the promised salvation only comes to those who persevere in the faith to the end. This doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. It means that if you truly have salvation, you will believe and keep believing. And so receiving these warnings are part of God's means to keep you believing. So in the five minutes or so, last five minutes, I want to overview what I think is kind of the key to unlocking the, the perspective of the, authors, the author. Really, the kind of the, the theological framework or how he understands Christianity that makes sense of all of this. So if you have questions, how does this fit together? There's all these diverse pieces that I have to hold together. This is like the one unifying idea. And in two words, it's the new covenant. So the the book of Hebrews, you've probably noticed as you read through this, big on the Old Testament, right? Big on Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament expectations and big on the new covenant. In fact, the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. It's in Hebrews 8, and it's that quotation of, anyone know what text that is? Jeremiah 31. One of the key Old Testament expectations of what was going to happen when Jesus comes. He will bring a new covenant. It's one of the few texts that describes the new covenant with the word, or the two words, new covenant. And it's in Hebrews. This is big for Hebrews. So, a couple observations. One, it's helpful to think about what was the problem of the old covenant that needed to be solved in the new covenant? Anyone know? What, was it, what were the problems of the old covenant? They're hard. Two things, what? Repetition of yeah, repetition of sacrifice. So not a final sacrifice for sins. What else? Their yes, their hearts. So if you think about it in terms of sin, two things. One, they needed full and final forgiveness of their sins. They also needed a new power to stop sinning. <laughs> um, in a fundamental way. The problem with the old covenant is that it did, not allow, it did not have a people in it that were guaranteed to actually know God and persevere in trusting him. Really trust him from the heart at all. And Hebrews brings this up. Hebrews chapter 8. You can look at it with me. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's saying there's a problem with that first covenant. 
And then he quotes Jeremiah 1, or 31, to show what the problem of that first covenant was. And Hebrews 8, 8 says this, for he finds fault with them. Now, this is a translation question. It could mean he finds fault with it, with it, the covenant, rather than with them. But in the next couple of verses, you find out that's exactly what he means either way. The problem with the covenant was the problem with the people. Halfway into verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. Declares the Lord. So he says that, you know, there's a problem with the covenant. And when he explained what the problem was, he blamed the people in the covenant. The Israelites. So which is it? <laughs> right, it's both. The problem was the covenant that it, it um, had a people who didn't really love and obey God and didn't continue in it. The covenant wasn't a bad covenant. It was a weak covenant because the problem is the human heart. When God brings a covenant of law to people who have fallen sinful hearts, they will not really know God and persevere in the faith and trust him. So God needed a new beginning. And so the point two here is how the new covenant answers the problems of the old covenant. And Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 is quoted in whole here, the longest quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament, and explains it. And it lists three things. One of them is most important for our topic. New covenant members have the law on their hearts. In chapter 8, verse 10, he quotes Jeremiah that says this, there's now a desire to trust and obey God. And so I want to read a few notes here from other promises of the new covenant in the Old Testament because this is the framework that makes sense of the book of Hebrews and the warnings. So Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19 um, says this, God says, I will give them, when he brings a new covenant, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That was not promised in the old covenant to all the people of God in the old covenant. It was given to people with fallen, broken hearts and they couldn't keep the covenant. They rejected God constantly. They broke the covenant from the beginning. They went after idols. They hated God, the most, most of them. And he's saying that there's going to be a new covenant that fixes that problem. We're going to have a covenant now where every member has a new heart that I'm going to give them to cause them to obey me. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 7. Read 27 with me. And God says, I will put my spirit within you. And this is strong. I love this. And God is saying this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's promising that when the new covenant comes, he will cause his people to walk in his commands. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. We'll jump to 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. In other words, they'll run the race to the end. Verse 40. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. The problem with the old covenant is that they turned away from him. The answer in the new covenant is that they won't. So the new covenant is already here. It's not yet kind of fulfilled in the new creation. This will be fulfilled in its fullness. will actually be perfect and not sin at all ever. But now that it's here, it's really here. So we're not, we're not perfect, but we're persevering. Um, we're not like the Old Testament people of God. We're both fully forgiven and transformed in our hearts. So the book of Hebrews ends this way in chapter 13, verses 21 and 2021. 20, it says, benediction. And listen to the connection between how the Hebrews author, he's just given all of these warnings 
They need to persevere and listen to how he looks back on his own letter. That's what benedictions do. They gather up the heart of a letter and kind of cast it as a future blessing. He says this, Now may the God of peace, now may God do something. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So may God do something by the covenant, the blood of the covenant. May he do this according to the covenant. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Chapter 6, right? After doing his will, we will inherit the promises. Chapter 10. That you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the new covenant. May God work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. In other words, may God himself persevere you in the faith. And he knows he will. Because those who are in the covenant have this promise. So the other blessings are that all the covenant members know God. In the Old Testament, they did not. There's evangelism within the covenant. In the new covenant, everyone knows him. And then finally, fully forgiven. So I just want to list these last implications for understanding Hebrews. One, and then we'll, we'll be done. Some three minutes over. Um, the author's confident that all true members of the covenant, the new covenant, will persevere in the faith. So this, is, this last section, by the way, these are the implications for understanding the book of Hebrews from how the book of Hebrews understands the new covenant or how the author understands the new covenant. So that, this is the key, I think. Understanding the new covenant, seeing how important it is to the author, here's what this means for the warnings. The author's confident that everyone in that covenant will persevere because God promises that that will happen in the new covenant. So in Hebrews 6, 9, our very text he, he assumes that the gift of salvation includes the gift of perseverance, right? He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, in your case, we feel sure of better things. He's contrasting falling away. You're not going to fall away. You're going to have better things, i.e. non-falling away. Things that belong to salvation. In other words, things that belong to new covenant salvation. Not just forgiveness, but perseverance. It's a package deal. The author, second, recognizes that all true believers must persevere in the faith. So they will, but they must. You have to. God will make sure it happens. But it's got to look like something in practice. It's not like you sit back, abandon Jesus, and say, well, I'm in the new covenant. I'll persevere to the end while you're not persevering. I mean, that's not how it works, right? This is real in human space and time. It works itself out. The author's confident also. He has confidence that they are in the new covenant because of their past obedience. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 show this. The reason why he's sure of better things for them is not because he heard that they have a mere profession of faith. A lot of people have a mere profession of faith and aren't really in the new covenant because it's not a true saving faith. But he has grounds for his assurance that they're part of the new covenant because he saw evidence that the promises are at work in them, that they have a new heart. So he says, I've seen your past you've clearly shown that you're transformed. So I'm confident that you're going to keep going then. It looks clear as day to me that you're in the covenant. So you've got to persevere, and you will. Uh, He's also his confidence from their past, that they're members of the new covenant. It gives him confidence for the future then that they'll persevere. Uh, Another note, none of this means that the author can be passive about their perseverance. So the fact that he knows that they'll persevere doesn't mean he can say, so just chill out. Um, it, that doesn't mean that. He's active calling them to. He's concerned about them. 
Because, and he gives warnings. And he thinks God will use those warnings to persevere them. And then last, this is all greatly encouraging. So a couple notes. The warnings are not intended to make us focus on the warnings. The warnings are made for focus, or to, to cause us to put our focus on Jesus. That's the whole point. Here's the teaching of the beauty of Jesus and the gospel and the freeness of his grace and salvation by faith alone. The warning says, keep looking. Don't, don't turn all introspective and think this is, this is really about you. The whole point is having a posture of empty hands of faith and keeping that posture. You can't have that posture if you're staring at yourself the whole time, right? It's looking to Jesus. And our obedience and perseverance, we can take glances at, and the Bible calls us to, self-examination, but not to the exclusion of looking to Jesus. That, that can give evidence that we have true faith. Say, am I part of the new covenant? Well, I, I've been holding fast. I think he's changed my life. I'm showing obedience. Okay, I'm part of the new covenant. Keep looking to Jesus. Um, the warnings highlight his value. So, um, we could end there. Well, this is fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, again, just encourage you to keep uh, wrestling through these things. A couple recommendations if this kind of topic is kind of one that burns in your soul. One, a great book by J.D. Greer called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. How to Know For Sure You're Saved. This is excellent. And he's a chapter on Hebrews 6 and warnings and perseverance. But this is so good because he recognizes there's two dangers we always need to avoid. Giving false assurance to those who think they're saved and they're not. And they should be unsettled. And unsettling people who are saved that shouldn't be so unsettled and just need confidence that they're saved and quit thinking they're not, right? Those are two real dangers. Both of them matter. He does a great job showing in the New Testament how it answers those. And then second, if, if you're thinking a little more, um, I don't know, intellectually or wrestling with this book and what I've talked about, uh, Tom Schreiner has a book called Run to Win the Prize, Perseverance in the New Testament. It's a bit of a kind of biblical theology of some of the things that I've been talking about. So this is a bit more easy read. This is less, but these are great books. Commend them to you. Um, and then we'll just keep talking about these things from here on out. So thank you for your time and you can sprint to your classes.